Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his discussion of the pragmatic theory of truth in lecture two of pragmatism, William James is going to give us a fairly detailed discussion about how it is that we in reality, not just in theory, but in the way that we actually do behave, how do we come to change our minds? That is, how do we accept new truths? How do opinions intrude upon us and become the new thing that we believe in place of something older, allowing us to hopefully make some sort of progress towards what we believe is true. And there's something to be said here first before we go into this explanation about why James is providing this. And one reason is there's a tendency to, when you first learn about pragmatism or people are talking about it or advocating it, to say, this is a bad idea. This can't possibly be a good thing for us to take on as a perspective. Why not? Because if we do, then our truths are going to be changing all of the time. There's, you might say, a worry not just about relativism in terms of, well, what works for that person might not work for me, but also just about constancy on our own part. You know, if it works for me to embrace virtue ethics this week because, you know, it makes me look like a decent person, but I want to behave like a totally naked, selfish egoist over here the next week, what's to prevent me from doing that? And James's answer is that we're actually a lot more conservative as human beings than that caricature of pragmatism would allow us to believe. If we look at the way in which not just pragmatists, but pretty much everybody across the board comes to accept new ideas, we see that we don't like new ideas quite often. Or if we do, we like new ideas of a certain kind that aren't really that new to us, but just novel, you might say. They don't shake up the fundamental structure of our thoughts, beliefs, opinions, actions, habits, all of that sort of stuff. So he tells us that the pragmatic theory of truth, which focuses on the usefulness of truth or its capacity to bring our experience, our new experience into satisfactory relation to all the rest of our experience, none of this is actually going to throw truth out the window. He says that we can look at the familiar way, the familiar process by which any individual settles into new opinions. He says that the individual already has a stock of old opinions and then they meet a new experience which puts them to a strain. It could be that they actually just have an experience. Like for example, let's say they've been told that fireworks are a fun thing to play around with and you know, you can hold them in your hand as often as you like and they've had smoke bombs before and they, those didn't burn them. And then you give them a firecracker and they hold it in their hand and boom, it goes off. And, and fortunately it doesn't blow their fingers off because it's not a big firework, but they're like, man, that hurt. What, what's going on here, right? Now we've got a contradiction between an experience and their previous stock of beliefs. 
You know, this happens oftentimes too when we are in the process of undoing prejudices, say concerned with race. You know, you spend some time hanging out with people who you've been told and you believe to be bad in certain respects and you find out that no, that's not the case for this person right here and it turns out it's not the case for their family and it turns out that it's not the case for their larger community. And now you've, you've got a new experience that starts to you know shake up your previously established system of of beliefs. A lot of things happen like that. That's only one way in which this happens. He tells us a bunch of different examples. Somebody contradicts our old opinions or in a reflective moment, we discover that our old opinions actually contradict each other. They're not internally coherent or consistent, right? Or we hear of facts with which those old opinions are incompatible. Or notice the next one that he says, desires arise in him which they cease to satisfy. We find out that the things that we believed in because we got something out of it in the past, we're not getting out of it what we used to. And maybe we find something else that we're getting something out of instead. So all of these are possibilities for how the new experience jars us and says, man, what am I going to do now? And he says, there is an experience of strain here. He says, the result is an inward trouble to which his mind till then had been a stranger and from which he seeks to escape by modifying his previous mass of opinions. You know, a prime example of this that's become a trope now in philosophy, right, is reading David Hume awakening Kant from what he called his dogmatic slumber. What is a dogmatic slumber? You know, you've got beliefs and you think that they're the right beliefs and everything's going along just fine. And then you read somebody else and you're like, oh man, what if this is actually true? Even if it's not true, the stuff I've got over here is, is not satisfactory for addressing that. Ooh, I better start rethinking stuff, right? And so that, that's what happens. What do we do then? James says that what we do is we behave with a, he calls us extreme conservatives. We try to hold on to as much as we can of our previous mass of opinions. We don't just throw it all out. And say, oh, it's all garbage. No, we actually hold on to as much of it as we possibly can. He says, we, we save as much of it as we can for in this matter of belief, we're conservatives. We ch try to change first this opinion, then that, for they all resist change variously into some, until some new idea comes up, which we can graft on the ancient stock with a minimum of disturbance of the latter. Notice that we're not accepting the originally proposed to us new experience or idea. We're accepting something else, a third thing. And he says that this allows us to mediate between the stock of old ideas and the new experience and runs them into one another most feliciously and expediently. So he says, this new idea is then adopted as the true one. What's the good parts about it? It preserves the older stock of truths with a minimum of modification, stretching them just enough to make them admit the novelty, but conceiving that in ways as familiar as the case leaves possible. And he says an explanation, he calls it outre, meaning, you know, really far out explanation, violating all our preconceptions would never pass for a true account of a novelty. We would scratch around industriously till we found something less eccentric. 
He also goes on and he says something really cool here. The most violent revolutions in an individual's belief leave most of his old order standing. Time and space, cause and effect, nature and history, and one's own biography remain untouched. And, you know, prime example of this is when we see people coming from a very conservative and largely fideistic and irrationalist sort of background that some sort of religious denomination has given them, usually some very conservative one, and and they start question those beliefs in part because those beliefs, you know, are usually half true and half false. And they, they start realizing that say the earth is, you know, not just whatever thousand number of years old, right? That it's actually billions of years old or whatever other things you, you might come across that there's internal problems with the logic of saying how the every single bit of the Bible is true because the Bible says so it, going on. What happens to them after they abandon that previous set of beliefs, that old faith? Well, they very often become like fundamentalists in a different sense of secularism. And they are just as gullible and as rigidly committed over on this side, except now they've got a new stock of beliefs that satisfy that same basic bedrock desire for absolute certainty. That's not just a belief, but also an affective structure running throughout their life. And we could come up with all sorts of examples of other sorts pertaining to whatever, whatever it is that you like. It would probably fit very well in here with what James is saying. So coming back to this, he says that, you know, this, this new idea, he says, is a go-between, a smoother over of transitions. It marries old opinion to new fact to show a minimum of jolt, a maximum of continuity. And he calls this a problem of maxima and minima, right? Minimum of disruption, maximum of continuity. And he goes on and he says that a new opinion counts as true just in proportion as it gratifies the individual's desire to assimilate the novel in his experience to his beliefs in stock. It must both lean on old truth and grasp new fact. So, you know, what does this tell us? This tells us that we're not as purely rational in how we accept new beliefs as, as we sometimes portray it to ourselves. Instead, there's this entire long process that's going on, typically without us thinking about it in very conscious ways, but mulling things over. And eventually we, we start to accept new truths. James also wants to stress to us that there is an important role that's being played by these older truths. He says that loyalty to them is a first principle. We can't just simply do the sort of, I'm going to disbelieve in everything I've learned up till this point and then build everything up through pure reflection the way, say, Descartes was suggesting we do. Instead, we have to work piecemeal, sort of like, you know, replacing one part in the car before replacing the next part. We have to slowly rebuild, reconstitute. And we're doing this all the time, James thinks. So the older truths actually perform a very valuable function. They allow us to have structure. And he talks about them as sort of the seemingly dead wood of the living tree where the life is going on on the outside, the periphery where new ideas are being forged and coming in. But the old wood supports the entire tree, doesn't it? So that's, that's quite important, right? 
And he's got a great example here, which again shows that the pragmatist is not just going to accept anything whatsoever, right? He talks about the belief in the absolute, which is kind of a you know going concern of his time. The absolute as being the divine, as being something that you know allows us to, as he says, take a moral holiday. So he tells us that we can't just take on any belief willy-nilly. He said, I said just now that what is better for us to believe is true unless the belief clashes with some other vital benefit. So he says that my belief in the absolute based on the good that it does me must run the gauntlet of all my other beliefs because all those other beliefs are doing some good for me as well. I can't just like throw them out because they're old or, you know, uh, I don't know exactly what they do. It's sort of like if you're going to operate on your body, imagine if you were going to go in and be like, I don't know what this organ does. Probably not needed, right? Just throw it away. You get a lot of trouble that way, right? So when we want to introduce a new idea that we're finding attractive, we have to make it in some way. He's got this metaphor of running the gauntlet. That's where you've got the line of people and you walk down the line and maybe they beat you up or say things to you or do things along the way to test you whether you can make it through. That happened to us, by the way, when I was in the army, every time you got a new rank, everybody would line up and you walk down the, uh, the sides and they'd punch you in the arm as hard as they could. Very painful, but of course you had to do it because that was, that was, you know, part of the ritual. At least that was our belief, right? That would be our old beliefs. And maybe somebody else would come along and say, it's kind of stupid what you're doing. And then we'd modify it. Oh, you can only get to punch them this hard right? or only every other person can punch them. That would be an example of how things get modified. So what we've got going on here is a really nice discussion of how it is that in reality, as opposed to our ideologies and theories about how we accept new truths. How, how do we actually do it in real life? How does it really happen? And I think James's account here is indeed quite plausible. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.